0: Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Artificial reproductive technology is an amazing art and allows for the birth of new beautiful souls into our world that would not have been born without it. From helping heterosexual couples conceive when they otherwise couldn't and have their own biological children to helping single people be parents and form their own families, to allowing both partners of homosexual couples to have a biological connection to each of their children. Yet there are multiple regulatory issues that are invoked by moving fertility from the bedroom to the boardroom. The industry is highly lucrative, with the global IVF market currently valued at $15 billion. And in the United States, private equity firms are buying up clinics and venture capitalists are pouring millions into fertility-focused startups. Where there is profit, there is predation. The art industry is largely self-regulated. While doctors performing art procedures and therapies are regulated by their licensing boards, broker agencies that match intended parents with donors and surrogates, for instance, are not. This is particularly problematic as intended parents are emotionally vulnerable egg donors and gestational surrogates are financially vulnerable and no one is well informed of the health risks in part because there is no reliable data on the consequent elevated risks. Egg socials and ubiquitous advertising target young women to freeze their eggs misleading girls into invasive and expensive procedures that may endanger their health and engender false hopes of freezing the clock. Women undergoing IVF are sold expensive add-ons of dubious benefit, while egg donors are paid more with each donation, encouraging them to go through more rounds when each subsequent donation increases their health risks, including later infertility and an elevated risk of cancer. Gestational surrogates have compromised patient-doctor confidentiality and are paid less than the minimum wage for what is indubitably a hazardous profession. Lack of regulatory oversight, including an absence of compliance reporting and integrity testing, has led to loss of embryos and gross mislabeling issues, including numerous instances of women being implanted with another couple's embryos. Then there are the children. How do we balance the privacy of donors and intended parents with the children's right to know their genealogy and genetic makeup? Limited disclosure laws allowing for disclosure at the age of majority may be the most respectful of these competing and diverse interests. IVF, egg donation and surrogacy laws vary across the world and even internally within the United States. Intended parents can go forum shopping and outright bans have led to an even predatory black market. Perhaps the only way to resolve these issues is through an international convention and domestically federal regulation to prevent a person from stripping away another parent's rights by moving to a friendly forum and being the first to file. I spoke with professors Naomi Khan and June Carbone on these regulatory gaps. Well, welcome to Gravity, Naomi and June. Thank you. It's great to be here. This is Naomi. Yes, this is June. Uh, looking forward to it. Procreation used to be a bit more of a private thing, and now it has come from the bedroom to become quite a big business. Uh, some estimates have it at $40 billion by 2024, which is uh, quite a lot of money. And um, for such a big profit margin... There, um, there appears to be very little regulation on the federal level, and I just wanted to start with the picture, the big picture of how we're regulating um, big fertility in the United States.
1: Okay, this is, this is Naomi. Let, let me start by saying, first of all, there is still an enormous amount of procreation that goes on in private. So let's, let's not forget that as we talk about the fertility industry. the Fertility industry has different components. Depending on what definition you use, you can count anything from uh, uh, any type of intervention involving a physician in the reproductive process, um, so anything from intrauterine insemination to in vitro fertilization, to using donor eggs, sperm, or embryos, uh, as well as surrogacy. So we're potentially talking about, so when we define the universe, we are talking about a potentially large market. So that's just to start in terms of uh, moving towards regulation, just what it is that we are regulating. So if you want also the overview of regulation...
2: You start with the idea that these are professionals doing it. So almost all of what we call assisted reproduction that involves third-party professionals involves medical profession. Nothing is more regulated than the medical profession. The doctors, the nurses, uh, oh even a variety of lab techs often have licenses, and losing that license is a very big deal. So if we wanted to talk about perhaps one of the most famous examples, uh, Nadia Suleiman, who the Octomom, who had a couplets, her doctor lost his medical license because of that. And he didn't do anything illegal. He didn't do anything that was prohibited by regulation. But he violated a variety of professional guidelines and exercised rather poor professional judgment in a variety of ways. And losing your medical license is a very big deal. So we don't start with the assumption there that it is unregulated, even though there are relatively few regulations that directly apply to assisted reproduction.
1: Let me step. This is Naomi. Let me step back and say that if we are talking about, yeah, we could be talking about the regulation of doctors. So there's medical licensing. There's also we've been hearing about an increasing number of tort lawsuits, which are another way, they're not formal regulation, but they're another way of trying to trying to right wrongs, trying to correct or, or, or trying to not correct, because you can't correct from any of these situations, but trying to compensate. So there are these there are these ways of trying to handle Um, I I think, what what the the, the comparative lack of regulation at the federal level. Now, there are state medical licensing boards, there are state um, uh, medical education requirements, there are hospital admission requirements, but when it comes to federal laws, um, federal laws in the assisted reproductive technology area are relatively limited and focus on just a few things. So if that's what you're talking about in terms of lack of regulation, uh, that's absolutely accurate. But again, we're talking about, as June pointed out, we are talking about the medical profession, um, uh, which which has its own regulations. It's uh, in many cases self-regulation. When it comes to, that's for physicians that's operating in clinics. There's another whole, I mean, this is such a huge area because then there are, of course, the sperm banks. Um, And while sperm banks generally have physicians affiliated with them, the sperm banks themselves are subject to comparatively little federal regulations. A few states have their own requirements.
0: Mm. Well, I suppose what I was wondering about was whether um, there is any government body and – Possibly, I'm ignorant of this, but I believe that there might not be, and um, even any advisory body in the medical profession, for instance, um, the is it the Assisted Reproductive Society or the American Society of Reproductive uh, no, Medicine? Yeah, American sorry. Society for Reproductive ASRM, right? Yes. So, but it seems that they have a lot of guidelines, um, but they don't yeah. even enforce their guidelines. So, um, there's no law or government agency specifically. And, and I could be wrong on this, which is why specifically detailing the labeling of samples for embryos so they don't get mixed up and put into the wrong woman, for instance. And there are no uh, routine investigations of uh, clinics to make sure that the equipment is running well, that the embryos are protected, there's no equipment malfunction, that everything's labeled correctly. Is there any agency that covers this or do we have to fall back on deceptive trade practices and so forth?
1: Well, I'm finding myself in the odd situation of saying, "Well, there actually is some regulation here." Um, I, many many of the I mean okay, first of all let's let's step back and say the ASRM is a professional organization that is a membership organization of many reproductive endocrinologists. and um most most reproductive endocrinologists will follow the guidelines of the ASRM. So, but it is not a government body. It does not have any binding authority to enforce those guidelines. That is absolutely accurate. It is a. It depends on its members to self-regulate. Uh, it's not just the vast majority. The overwhelming, almost all of them do. Uh, we tend to hear about the ones who don't. We don't tend to hear about the ones who do which is the majority of them. But again, as you're right, yeah, as you said, there is no mandated enforcement uh, of ASRM guidelines. Uh, they have both an ethics and a practice committee that do issue recommended guidelines. Again, not, not mandatory. Uh, then we go to the federal government, uh, and the federal government actually deals with this through two different agencies. So there's not one regulatory body. One agency is the Centers for Disease Control, which collects information on the success rates of assisted reproductive technology cycles and publishes annually a list clinic by clinic of the success rates. Uh, So that is something that the federal government does there's a federal law that requires clinics to report success rates. And I I've actually been hoping a journalist would go investigate just how often the clinics that report are actually investigated by the CDC, which has farmed it out to a um a private organization. But but CDC says we enforce we, we check up on these on these clinics that report. So we get success rates from the CDC. And then the FDA, has also, the Food and Drug Administration has also um, uh, adopted guidelines with respect to the testing of human tissues for reproductive purposes, uh, I, but the testing is focused on sexually transmitted diseases as opposed to on genetic diseases, and there is no requirement. The same donor of sperm or gamete our eggs could donate countless number of, of times at countless number of clinics and agencies, so long as um, uh, so long as the gametes are adequate for reproduction. So there's no regulation of of that. There are also um, uh, requirements with respect to clinics. Uh, who want to be certified by various agencies.
0: Right. So the clinics perform the uh, the medical procedures, correct? Or are you talking about agencies? The, yeah, the clinics, yeah. right, or the, or the clinics or the, or the medical practices. Okay. Yeah. Now, you had said that the federal law um, that dictates what tests are necessary for uh, genetic material that is donated – uh, focuses on sexually transmitted diseases. Exactly. So there's no genetic testing that's required.
1: Um, I don't believe there is any genetic testing that is required. Let, I just want to make sure we're talking, we, we've moved away from talking about general in vitro fertilization on, uh, or uh, sperm insemination by partner right. on... Uh, And what we're talking about now is third party reproduction involving a, involving, um, sperm or eggs. And, and here the language is kind of bizarre because we talk about donated eggs or sperm. They're not donated. They're generally paid for. Uh, and so, so we're talking, we are talking about an industry. Um, in terms of, uh, in terms of the testing for genetic diseases, there might be one or two genetic tests, but certainly not a panoply of tests. And when a donor goes to a clinic, uh, the their clinic is under no obligation to verify that what the donor has told the clinic is accurate. So if someone says, "I graduated." I'm sorry. Someone says, "I graduated with straight A's from this particular college." Uh, there's no requirement that the clinic go back and get the college transcript, for example.
0: Mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when you put the two things together, when you were saying that uh, there's no uh, requirement for genetic testing, there's no limit to how much a donor can donate. And and I'm calling them donors, but um, yes, (laughs) I understand that there's some uh, money involved. Okay, so perhaps uh, biologically uh, a woman has a certain limit as to how much she can donate, but theoretically men can just donate the sperms at, you know innumerable clinics, innumerable times, right? I mean, if there's no limit, how many uh, children are they fathering then? And children that might uh, have some genetic disease that we don't know about, children that might not know that they're related and then meet each other, there seems to be many <laughs> nebulous circumstances Um, that uh, require perhaps some limitation.
2: Yes, and this is is June. And I think one thing that might be helpful for your listeners, you know, in in thinking about what's going on, is if you're talking about a doctor who's performing a medical procedure like IVF, whether or not there are laws that say, thou shalt do this or you shouldn't do that, Uh, The professional regulation has real teeth for two reasons. The first is if things go wrong, uh, the doctor can lose her license, which I mentioned earlier. And the second reason is the professional regulations establish a foundation for a malpractice suit. So the doctor who violates professional regulations, even if the professional boards never police anything, it makes it relatively easy to bring a malpractice suit. But then at the other end are, let's say, sperm banks. Now, the sperm banks can be run by anybody. They, you know, doesn't have to be a doctor. You don't have to involve a nurse. Uh, It can be somebody who sets up a sperm bank, gets it up and running. Sometimes they are run by doctors. Uh, Many of the egg donation clinics are run by lawyers. But you don't have to have any kind of professional background. So you could set up one of these banks, and indeed you can get freeze-dried sperm from abroad. Uh, Denmark has a huge sperm bank. The U.S. sends sperm all over the world. Those clinics, you know, that are are recruiting donors, donors, sperm donors, aren't necessarily subject to the same professional regulations. So if you have somebody set them up and they run it badly and they get sued, they may be out of business but with no recourse. Because, as I said, the deeper the pockets, the more you have professionals involved, there's more uh, likelihood that you've got somebody who cares very much about doing things right because they have a lot at stake. But with the donor agencies, that's where you may have much less with any kind of oversight.
0: This brings me to the question on the lack of informed consent with respect to donor agencies, which some have termed exploitation agencies. And one thing that I find highly relevant for, uh, say, our audience to know as well is that it seems that egg donation is largely by, well, obviously young women, but uh, women that uh, require um, some monetary help while they go through college to finance themselves through that. Firstly, they're in a position of being compelled to look for extra income and that if they're not provided adequate consent, whether these agencies that you just mentioned aren't as regulated, just like doctors are regulated and can lose their license, these agencies, maybe they're just running rogue. Do we need to police these agencies to ensure that they are providing adequate consent of the health consequences of egg donation to girls? There are a lot of
2: things coming down the pike on this, and I think where we are now, where we're going to be in a few years, may be quite different. First, in understanding what's going on, Um, big difference between sperm donation, where you have more, more people willing to donate than they need, it's, it's actually hard to be a sperm donor. Uh, the agencies are fairly picky about who they take. Got to be tall, uh, have to be good looking,
1: variety of other things. And well, um, well, no, 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 no. What what they focus on is motility. They focus on somebody's sperm. Oh, but they also focus on
2: these other things. Some agencies reject ninety percent of the men who apply, and it's
1: not because yeah, oh, not sperm. for more than some brag about how many they reject.
2: Right. So, uh, egg donation, on the other hand, it's an intrusive process. It has real health risks, and it's not fun, even if everything goes well. So uh, with egg donation, if you didn't have payment, you would have almost no egg donations except for family members. So they're really, very different in that sense. And what's coming down the pike as well is going to be uh, the combination of egg freezing to preserve fertility. And there are some companies, Miami Rake for for Forbes magazine, occasionally, there are great columns in Forbes about what's coming next in the industry, and there are some groups that want to get women to start, you know, keeping track of their fertility, going in for tests, thinking about a freezing in their twenties, uh, not postponing this until their thirties. Now, all these kinds of initiatives, I mean, there's not much in the way of consumer protection. How much of this is needed? you know, testing your fertility at age 26, Mm, don't know, Uh, how much of it is exploitative, not just for the egg donors, where you could have people taking health risks they don't fully appreciate, but also for recipients. Uh, Egg freezing right now is relatively new. Uh, It's not so clear how many women are going to freeze eggs. The average egg right now for freezing eggs eggs is age 37, a point when fertility is already beginning to decline. You freeze your eggs at 37, want to use them at 44. You may find none of them are viable, and it's very hard to know in advance. So is this, in effect, encouraging people to do something that they don't need, but they're going to shell out a lot of money for, or won't work if they do need it? All those questions are the things that I think are going to be increasingly important in the future. And right now,
1: we're not even sure we know what the questions are, but we've got to adapt. Let me just clarify that that what June is explaining is two different sets of procedures. Um, I mean, it's the same underlying getting someone to produce eggs. But one involves women freezing their own eggs for later use. And there's certainly been some people who claim that women don't understand not only the risks of the medical procedures involved in freezing eggs, but the risks that the eggs that they produce now will not then become viable embryos and ultimately babies. So that's one set of issues. And then the other set of issues relates to when someone donates eggs to another person or through, through a clinic or agency. On what protections are there with respect to informed consent for the donation process. So egg freezing is now uh, kind of useful in two different sets of circumstances. One is women freezing their own eggs. The other is women providing eggs for, for uh, other, other people. Right.
2: And, and uh, this is June again. Uh, I think Naomi explained that very well. And one of the ways in which they may be more connected in the future is if you have young women freezing eggs as a protection or women going through IVF and having eggs extracted for their own use, they may end up with extra eggs that they can donate. And some women help finance their own IVF by donate, agreeing in advance to donate any extra eggs uh, in a way that offsets the costs they incur. So there are a variety of things that are going on that in the future um, it may present an entirely different set of questions.
0: Yes, they do. Let's start with the advertising to women to freeze their eggs, because I think maybe there's um, smaller issues involved there. But what I worry about is that firstly, it appears that this advertising is predatory. Between like 24 and 37, you're going to find that uh, everywhere you go on social media or Google, they're going to put these ads out there for you. And they instill this fear that your biological clock is ticking. And sure, I guess your biological clock is ticking. But I worry that you pay $12,000 or whatever it is to freeze your eggs. But firstly, um, as far as I understand, um, egg freezing is not as well developed as embryo freezing. So an embryo can, can be uh, frozen for you know a decade or more. I don't know how viable eggs will be if they have to be frozen for that long. And um, an egg might never be a viable embryo or be able to be implanted. There's a lot of risks there. And it's providing women this false security. Well, it's okay. You can delay getting pregnant until you're 45 or concentrate on your career because you've already frozen your eggs. Don't worry about it. And um, that might not be, you know, so accurate. Um, on the other hand, um, there's, there's also these health impacts. I mean, you have to put yourself... Um, through a hormone regimen, and as well as I believe the egg extraction process also carries certain risks because it punctures um, the uterine wall and other things. Um, I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I could be wrong about that, but um, I do believe that there's some inherent risk. And now, obviously, if you're facing, say, sterility because you have to um, have a hysterectomy or undergo um, chemotherapy or something, you know, y- you value the risks differently. But if you're just a regular 25-year-old girl, this predatory advertising, I I find it quite disingenuous and somehow very wrong. I do think there should be some regulation of these agencies.
1: Well, there is supposed to be, um, in the medical profession, there is informed consent to medical procedures that is required. So, I mean, if we're talking about the actual procedure, there are all of those forms that one signs before undergoing any medical procedure. Now the question is, what is it that needs to be disclosed? Um, I mean, we're talking both about medical risks from a procedure, uh, I, and then we're also talking about the, the, the sort of promise, you know, harvest, as you said, harvest your eggs now, have a baby later. So we're also, I, so the medical consent forms don't cover the risks that the eggs you freeze now may not be viable in the future, so certainly stronger informed consent, stronger information, uh, and much better means of getting informed consent. And we've all become accustomed to we do this all online, whenever, right, whenever we sign up for a new program, who reads all of those terms and conditions? Uh, and and I think the same thing. Unfortunately, with many medical consent forms, you know. Um,
2: on that score, uh, uh, we, we we have a colleague, uh, Jody McGuire at Indiana, uh, yeah, who has been working to develop online interactive consent forms. And the more yeah. I'm thinking fertility. of that. Too. Yeah, yeah. Fertility doctors actually want their their patients to understand what <laughs> this whole process is about. Now, egg-freezing agencies, you know, you do need a doctor involved in extracting the eggs. But um, uh, but the agencies that recruit aren't necessarily doing that. And even if, I mean, a woman fully understands what the risks are. If you were currently 37 years old, <laughs> uh, to take a non-random example, because the average woman who freezes her eggs is 37, uh, there's no question. Every month that passes, your fertility is, on an actuarial basis, declining. And you have a choice. Either you freeze them or you don't. But even if you do, there's no guarantee. If you don't, there's a pretty good guarantee that your active fertile life uh, will soon be coming to an end. So what we're talking about isn't really so much just false advertising but really a dilemma that is built into the postponement of fertility. And that's just, you know, so the dilemma is real. Uh, And then the question, are there people who are exploiting women's fears? Yes. But think about the alternatives. They could encourage women to freeze their eggs in their 20s. Um, I I have suggested somewhat humorously, this is the perfect thing to market to would-be grandparents. Uh, To give, as a college graduation present, 22-year-olds are generally pretty fertile with healthy eggs, freeze them then. Uh, And then you have an unlimited supply to donate to others. But um, putting all that aside, I mean, those are your choices. You could have a much more aggressive industry, encouraging younger women to freeze their eggs. Or you can have an industry that's there for the 37-year-old recognizing that the odds
1: are against. You. Or you could create a system, uh, this, just to pick up on what you said, you can create a system that encourages um, a, a different work structure so that I uh, would-be parents don't feel like they have to postpone their fertility.
0: I agree with that. I think that's the way to go because it's the least invasive way. The only problem is Um, that I can see there is sometimes you don't meet a person you want to have a child with until later on in life. And that's just not something that you can time, right?
1: (laughs) Right. Um, Now there are an increasing number of single women, single mothers by choice. Uh, And I suppose an increasing number of single fathers by choice as well, although it's not as visible a movement.
0: Yeah. And I'd like to discuss this further um, just a bit later on that we do need to have a different conception of a family. And I don't think um, we need to really be tied to a two-parent system uh, anymore, and um, you explored that in your book, Nomi, as well. But before we go on to that topic, I just want to uh, look at egg donation again, Um, and I think it's instructive to look at it from a a global perspective. So uh, certain countries completely um, have uh, made it illegal, uh, criminal, actually. So Italy, Norway, China, as examples, and um, some countries allow it purely, um, for an altruistic purpose. So France, um, New Zealand, uh, Australia, um, and then, uh, oh, in Canada as well. Canada, if you purchase an egg in Canada, you can go to prison for 10 years or pay a five and or pay a $500,000 fine. So, um, there's all these different restrictions, but then Where it's allowed, I I thought it was quite interesting how different countries had a different uh, perspective. So, for instance, in Bulgaria, you can't donate an egg unless you're already a mother. And um, that's also uh, the same in Russia, yeah, and um, that is the same, I think, in a few other countries. But um, what's interesting about that is that um, I've read that sometimes if you do uh, multiple egg donation, you can lead to infertility, and uh, this, I guess, addresses that problem that you won't ever possibly later on be disgruntled about your decision to help someone else have a child and you can't have a child because of it because you've already got a child. So um, maybe that's why they have that in the law. Um, but they, they also require anonymity unless you're a close relative. And then in New Zealand, they, they require the opposite. They require a limited disclosure where the child, when they're 18, um, finds out so it's it's all oh Japan which firstly only allowed it uh, between sisters and friends I think they've loosened it up but in Israel um, if you're married you can't donate to someone you're related to so it's, it's just a, a kerfuffle really if you look at the different laws oh. um, we can't seem to decide what is the moral right thing to do with respect to um, egg donation but um I think if we look at the different risks, for instance, uh the fact that these girls do go through quite an intensive uh procedure, um, including, I guess, I don't know what you would call the hormone therapy. It's not really therapy, but synchronize their cycles and so forth that could lead to hyper lead to hyper what's it called, hyper um
1: There is there is less less there used to be before egg freezing. Um, there was there was certainly a need to synchronize cycles, but with with egg freezing, um, increasing I mean with, with egg freezing, losing its experimental label, there is no longer a need to synchronize cycles.
0: Right. So I. Oh, that's good then. Okay. so But should we have regulation that says you're not allowed to use X amount of hormones because we know this could lead to hyperstimulation simulation ovarian syndrome because the girls are young and you're going to get enough eggs, don't be greedy. And also because we know the risks to a donor increase the more times they give, should we just flat out say, look, you can't do it more than twice? Well, no, I was
1: actually going to approach that from a different perspective, which is, yes, there, is the, there are the health risks, certainly, to women from egg donation, and we still don't even know what all of those risks are. Um, but the other way to approach it is if one woman can produce 12 eggs per cycle, we could also limit the number of families or the number of children born through uh, one individual donated eggs or sperm, which is, of course, what the UK does. June, did you want to add something?
2: Yes. Yeah, I I think there's a much bigger issue underlying this whole area. So uh, should there be oversight of the uh, amount of hormones that are used, of uh, the number of times women are allowed to donate, et cetera, et cetera? Yes. And there should clearly be professional ethical standards about that. And if a woman ends up, Uh, you know, developing problems as a result of her uh, participation in donation. She should have a claim against the doctor's, you know, malpractice and things like that. The problem you have is this is a global industry. So I was doing a talk uh, recently and I was doing my little, I I always learn what's new by Googling (laughs) all of this and every time I do, there's something new people are advertising and I was quite stunned to find out that in the um, under the category of egg donation, the first thing that uh, came up was an agency advertising the best eggs uh, in, with donors coming from six different countries, uh, five in Asia, one in Russia, and saying, our donors will come to you. And um, these ads are in English. Uh, they're clearly designed partly at least for an American audience. And they seem to be saying, yeah, we'll go recruit egg donors, fly them over, uh, come to where you are, provide for the donation and leave, or if uh, coming to the US isn't feasible, in some third country. Now, think about what that means. Practically, um, that means that any regulation adopted in the US, especially if it were draconian, I mean, uh, every country that limits payment finds they have. Uh, almost no egg donors, except for sisters or relatives who are doing this for somebody close to them. So if you don't have the payment, uh, and if you have regulations that are too tight, you just drive this abroad. And uh, these international agencies, in effect, act as matchmakers. Uh, in some cases, to get around regulations that are too restrictive, like bans on payment. In other cases, um, uh, because it's cheaper, recruiting egg donors abroad is easier. In the United States, for example, there has long been a shortage of Asian egg donors. And this agency, I suspect, developed to get around the problem. Oh, we don't have enough Chinese Americans to donate eggs. We'll find Chinese uh, women willing to donate eggs somewhere else in the world maybe not China, but as uh, anywhere in Southeast Asia, and we will connect them to Americans who want the eggs and then problem solved at lower net cost. So one problem with regulation in this area is the brokers. The brokers are the ones who exist (laughs) to evade the regulations, and unless they're responsible parties, the regulations aren't going to be very effective.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. It's a global industry, right? And um, and we need to look at it from a global perspective. I think um, the U.S. seems to have a lot of gestational uh, surrogacy tourism, um, perhaps because uh, we allow commercial surrogacy in um, certain states like California, have quite a good uh, legal system backing up the fact that our parents can get birth certificates before the birth and the intended per- parental Uh, rights are enforced uh, in California. And of course, um, if you're a foreign parent, and um, this is not allowed in your country, and you come here, you have also the added benefit of the 14th Amendment, providing uh, US citizenship to your kids if you would want it. I I can't fathom somebody, you know, doing this and relinquishing the child. It is, um, you know, it's, I guess people have done it for years, centuries. They've given up kids for adoption as well. Um, and that's their biological material. But, um, you know, it's it's massive commodification to some extent that um, these women, and, and it seems a lot of them are military wives, um, are getting paid only $20,000 or something. And that's less than the minimum wage if you think about how long pregnancy takes. And that... There's so many rules that they have to, uh, you know, they're, they're watched over and, and supervised by doctors and they, they have limited patient-doctor confidentiality. I mean, uh, what, what are protections for surrogates that we have, not just for the intended parents?
1: Well, let let me step back from that and talk about, I, I, I mean, there are, there are, I guess, two opposite ways to think about surrogacy. Right, One is to ban it completely because it involves commodification. Uh, You're selling a baby and because a woman is selling her body. So it's it's sort of like we we ban both baby selling and we ban most states do, at least prostitution. Um, That's one way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it is autonomy. If someone, and um, often there's a requirement that the surrogate have already experienced giving birth, so she knows what's involved. Um, uh, uh, Do we want to limit women's autonomy when it comes to serving as a surrogate? And so those are sort of the, the two different ways of thinking about it, two ends of a continuum. And an increasing number of jurisdictions in the U.S., are moving towards regulating surrogacy in some way. So ensuring that the surrogate is uh, legally represented in the process, uh, not enforcing necessarily all of the terms in a surrogacy agreement. Uh, one one yes. more thing to say about That's surrogacy sure. is that there are still, I mean, surrogacy gets a lot of attention. We're not talking about a whole lot of babies born each year through surrogacy, um, at least through gestational surrogacy. There are two different kinds of surrogacy. The traditional surrogacy involves the woman using her own egg and becoming pregnant. Uh, the kind of, I, I think the more common kind involves a woman gestating a donated egg. Sorry, go ahead, Jen. Yeah, and, and I think the other part of that is, you know, the absolutely compelling
2: cases. Uh, where, you, where you feel incredibly moved are women who, for example, have had to have their uterus removed, but they've saved the eggs, or um, you know, uh, gay men who want to have a yeah, child gay, gay a male, male couples. yeah, uh, who yeah who want to have a child to whom they're genetically related and who also have trouble adopting, um, and uh, this is the only way for them to do it. Now, when you ask the question, but what about the women? Well. Right now, uh, you know, a number of countries, uh, such as India and Russia that have been encouraging international surrogacy have, they have clamped down on it. With the result that it's increasing in the U.S. So right now in the U.S., 20% of surrogacy cases, uh, involve couples who have come from abroad. So the wealthy of the world who want surrogacy are coming from the United States. And if you look at the surveys of surrogates, um, uh, 95% of them are gestational surrogates. That means the egg is not their egg. So the child to whom they're giving birth is not their genetic child. And the vast majority feel good about the process. They don't mind being pregnant or they wouldn't do it. Um, they already have children is a requirement of most reputable agencies in the United States. Um, They feel they are doing something for someone else. And if you read some of these surveys, there's almost a professional notion of, um, you know, we're doing something where we are helping somebody else have their own child. Now, when you read the cases of surrogacy gone wrong, (laughs) um, uh, there there are a number of things. Uh, There's a case in California. The surrogate was 47 years old. She had already this was the fourth time she had been a surrogate in, in addition to giving birth to her own children. Uh that's and she gave birth to triplets. That's nuts. I mean, no agency should be doing that. But, uh for for one thing, there's no reason to implant triplets. Uh, you're using in this case, it was a single father and donor eggs. So um, you know, there there were no fertility issues involved. Um, so there is no reason to do it, 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 and that endangers for health. And, you know, there are things like that that should be regulated, uh, not over a certain age, uh, only a certain number of times, uh, limitations on the embryos to be implanted, but I think that's a violation of every professional standard in those kinds of cases. Well,
0: I was just wondering whether you were talking about the case of... um... Oh, dear, I forget the name, but it went to the Supreme Court and um, the surrogate lost. She wanted to retain custody of the children she gave birth to. She was not their biological mother, just a gestational surrogate, but the father was um, apparently he he had some disabilities. He he wanted her to terminate one of the one of the children because he said he couldn't afford three kids. Um, She didn't do that. Uh, He apparently neglects the children and um, she still couldn't retain custody. And I suppose if there's a case where the intended parent neglects the child and the gestational surrogate wants to provide them a good home, it doesn't seem like in the best interests of the child for the biological father to have sole custody.
2: Yeah, that, that's what I was about to go into. <laughs> yes, that's the case, and and that's sort of the That was going to be the second half. Uh, but I think it's more complicated than that. So again, uh, so I was saying. First, the set of issues about the health of the surrogate. The second set of issues, again, I think of like matchmaking. So in that case, um, there's also a case in Michigan where the surrogate refused to surrender uh, the children because she found out that the uh, not the intended mother, it was not her ex, the intended mother had a mental illness. I forget now whether she was bipolar um, and on medications, and it was controlled, but she didn't approve And uh, there are a number of other cases where there's background information. When the surrogate finds out, she doesn't approve. So this case in California, the father was (laughs) deaf. He was a postal worker. He lived with his elderly parents. He was, I think, 50. And uh, and she didn't really approve of him as a father. And one of the reasons why um, uh, the whole thing happened, though, is, as I said, she should never have been implanted with triplets. When he found out, he was overwhelmed. I mean, he was going to have trouble care- taking care of one child. He was willing to deal with twins. But triplets, he was appalled. And he wanted a selective reduction, that is, to abort one of the triplets. She didn't believe in abortion. And she said, well, yeah, I signed a contract saying um, I would abort. but And if there had been birth defects, I would have been okay with it but she didn't like the idea of aborting a healthy child. And so um, that's where uh, things then fell apart. But you have a basic dilemma about all of this. And the dilemma is, should a 50-year-old father, uh, should a 50-year-old wannabe father who is single and deaf feel like he needs? who makes that decision? A lot of agencies would not accept him as a client. But then they're saying to him, we don't approve of deaf people. We don't approve of the fact you're single. We don't approve of the fact you're 50. Um, And how do you make those decisions? And I think that's a really difficult issue. Um, If you had provided that information to the surrogate up front, she might have said no. And I'd add to this, too, that... um, You know, states vary a fair amount, but California, where this took place, is absolutely Mm -hmm. clear. The intended parents are the legal parents, the only legal parents. If the agency arranges for the parties to sign a contract in the beginning with legal representation for both and to provide medical coverage, there are a variety of things. They have to do it in advance, they have to file it, but they guarantee certainty on parenthood and, um, you know, he is the only legal father. Uh, deciding whether he's a fit father or not, well, there is no screening that's done on that issue. But her determination, you know, the question of whether or not they were elected, were uh, people talking to People magazine and the press uh, and bad-mouthing him. We don't know if that's true. I mean, we just don't know. But uh, unless child welfare becomes involved because they do an inspection, you don't know whether he's a fit parent. She's relying on the fact that he's 50, single, uh, deaf, and, you know, not prepared to deal with triplets by his own admission.
0: Probably a lot of people might be a little unprepared to deal with triplets, you know, it's probably quite difficult, but... um... It's a question of... Just
1: uh, uh, sort of what, what regulations do we have? This gets back to the questions that you were talking about at the beginning. Uh, how differently do we want to treat assisted reproduction from uh, uh, non-assisted, I, I don't want to call it natural, from, from, from non-assisted reproduction? That is what a, a 50-year-old uh, deaf single man who became involved with a woman, girlfriend, and uh, she became pregnant, we don't say, oh gosh, you can't be the father because you are not prepared to be the father of triplets. So how differently, what requirements do we want to put on assisted reproduction that we don't put on other kinds of reproduction? And those are some of the arguments of people who are against putting various kinds of limits on assisted reproduction.
0: Hmm. Well, I think it would be quite problematic um, if you had agencies, and actually, I think it is the case, perhaps, that um, agencies can select uh, families or or people based on the fact that they don't want to deal, say, with single people, they don't want to deal with homosexual couples. I mean, this would be terrible. I mean, these are the people that, you know, need assisted reproduction in the first place. So to turn them away is... um, quite heinous. I think. Well, the question is, uh, this actually came up in a in California
1: case, but the question is, what are the states anti-discrimination laws?
0: In California, we have the UNRA Act. I...
1: Yep, not all states do, yeah. But do you see, did you
2: see one of the questions, and, and I think Sue's question was: what are the legal obligations of the lawyers <laughs> that help people within those contracts? So she said, "This this is a 76-page contract. I didn't read it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I had done this before. I, you know, I, I didn't realize that I would be required to selectively reduce uh, triplets. And I will tell you, one of the agencies here in uh, Minneapolis uh, uh, felt so strongly about this. They put in their contracts there will be no selective reduction of twins. If the parent you know intended parents want it because the agency thought that was immoral, so they they put this in all their contracts, we won't allow it. but in other other agencies, basically, you know I have a friend who's dealing uh, handling cases lawyer where the intended couple wanted somebody who was opposed to abortion, and they got you know a Christian sort absolutely opposed to abortion. everybody was really happy, and the child ended up having serious birth defects. And the intended parents changed their mind. They wanted an abortion because the child had severe birth defects. And the surrogate said, but hey, we had a contract. The contract said no abortion. And so, um, you know, these issues go in a variety of directions. But I think the question, who decides these things? And what's the obligation of an agency to get the intended parents and surrogate on the same page about difficult questions like this? is one that, um, you know, I've been arguing the lawyers involved have should have an obligation to tell people about these provisions in the contract, to tell them any requirement that a surrogate has an abortion is not enforceable uh, as a matter of law, and to tell both sets of parties, hey, uh, you're depending on each other to act in good faith. Let's set some parameters about what this means in advance. Uh, but that doesn't always work either.
0: But if the intended parents don't want a child, is it still their child and then they have to give it up for adoption? Or can the gestational surrogate be then deemed the mother because she doesn't want to abort and wants the child and the parents have relinquished their rights? Do they have to go through a process or can they just write in the contract, I suppose, Mm -hmm. that it's just automatic that there are triplets and she's asked to selectively reduce and she doesn't want to, she gets to keep one. It depends on state law. Nami, go ahead. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, if you're in California, the intending parents are the intending parents, and they are responsible for that child or those children.
2: And you can't change that by contract. they are still the parents, and they are the parents unless there is a procedure that terminates parental rights, which there might be if everybody is in agreement. But you need a legal process to do that. It doesn't happen by contract. It doesn't
0: happen by contract, right. Um, And now I I guess this is a bit of a segue. I've read numerous cases where, and and this also goes back to my question in the beginning with respect to um, regulating the industry, having checks. To prevent mislabeling because it appears that quite a number of women to be implanted with their own genetic material, their own embryo, but instead have received other couples embryos. Right. I've right. been focusing on this and I don't know why. And and when I was reading um, about the cases and the media is always intentious about this, well, obviously, because it's so, so perplexing but they always focus on the intended parents. And I get it, of course, it's their child. It's, I understand they're distraught, but nobody mentions the poor mother that went through IVF herself to have her own embryo implanted and then ended up giving birth. I think it was um, a woman in New York who gave birth to two boys and even cared for them after Then had to give them up and has absolutely no visitation right. To me... Right. I feel for all the parents. If you just read what the media says, she's a non-entity. This just happened to her. Not only did she not have her own children, she developed this uh, ineffable connection, maternal connection. Why do we deny visitation rights when something like this happens? And what happens uh, in the case where a woman finds out very early on? From my understanding, this would be unconstitutional and you couldn't do it, but could the parents of the embryo when if they found out, so if everybody finds out early on that um, you know something has gone wrong, can they force the woman if it's their only embryo and they're never ever going to get a chance to get another biological child? Can they force her to have that child?
1: No, absolutely right. not. Right. Right. Yeah. Not. Yeah. You cannot force someone to carry a child. Okay. Uh, a woman <laughs> has a right, a right, a right to choose. Um. But, but in The, uh, well, I mean, in in the other situations that you're talking about, we generally, and this is changing, and June and I have written about this, but we generally only recognize two parents. So if you have, and as I said, this is changing, including in California, um, but if you only have two parents, then you can't, then you have to figure out how to give visitation to someone who is not a parent. We are, we are developing new laws that permit that, um, but the traditional approach had been it is up to the parents, and there should be, of course, a doctrine on this, um, uh, it is up to the parents to decide what is in the best interest of their children and whether that includes visitation with this third party. And it's, um, in the situations you're talking about, the person would be deemed a third party. So that's been the traditional approach of the law. Uh, as June and I have written about, that's certainly changing. But that's why um, that's why the mother or that's why the woman would not get visitation rights. Um, the other thing to say about this is that with a proliferation of DNA testing, we're going to start finding out about many more problems. I mean, there are already a surprising number of children who've discovered that they are not biologically related to the... Uh, the parent well to the father who raised them. Um and or that the sperm donor women who discovered the sperm donor whom they were promised is not the sperm donor they actually got. So we're gonna start we're gonna start seeing more of these cases as we get better and better with, with and as, as DNA testing becomes uh, wider and wider. And I should also note we haven't touched on this issue very much. Um that's also gonna end any anonymity with donor eggs and sperm.
0: Perhaps the New Zealand system for egg donation, maybe it's the same for sperm donation. Perhaps that limited disclosure at 18 is really what we need because it respects the right of the intended parents to raise the child like they would want, but it also allows for the child to know where they came from. And you've got to respect the rights of the parents. You've got to respect the rights of the donors, because what if they only donate because they don't want anyone to knock on their door later? But then again, the child should be the focus. No, I mean, that's the end result, right? That's why everyone's there. <laughs> oh, ab- absolutely. No, absolutely. It's
1: not just New Zealand. It's, it's also in the UK that children are able at the age of 18 to find out the identity of their donors, and it's true also in other countries, in some Australian states as well. So um, I, that is, I, I think that is respecting the rights of the child, as well as, as you point out, the rights of the intending parents to raise the child uh, uh, on, their, on their own without fearing intervention by the donor. U.S., of course, we don't have any such regime, and so there are various mutual consent registries that exist through which donors and children, donors, and, and I should call them offspring because they're often no longer children, in which donors and offspring can find one another or in which the parents who have used the same donors can find one another. But it's it's informal. Um, there is some model legislation on this, but... Uh, uh, Not yet. And states are just beginning to consider this issue. But um, uh, as a general matter in the U.S., anonymity is the norm. Some banks, some sperm banks do allow for identity release donors. So they're a premium. But for a premium, um, uh, sperm can be purchased for which the child will be able at the age of 18 to discover the identity of the donor. Yes, and that increases the risk for the banks,
2: too. Um, You know, if you find out it's the wrong donor, uh, I think there should be liability for that, which there isn't currently. And that's one of the issues being litigated right now in Georgia.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, the Georgia case involves did the donor was there an obligation of the bank to do due diligence on the donor? So what is the obligation of a bank when it sells sperm to verify that all of the donors' claims are accurate? Although that's not
2: the issue on which Sir Ferreira has been granted by the Supreme Court. Right. Uh, that's a more general question. I mean, all of these cases involve basically wrongful birth. They claim, Hey, the child I ended up with is not the child I was promised. Uh, what are the damages for that? That's actually a very complicated legal question.
0: Hmm. Yeah. It is because you probably don't want a different child once you have it, right? You love that child. Right. Right. But, right. But, but you're still damaged. It's a harm that's, well, it's hardly quantifiable, isn't it? But then that's the problem. Our system is all about quantifying harms. That's why you have to always tie emotional distress unless it's egregious to some injury. But it seems that this would be egregious in a way. I mean, it's egregious, I think, to implant an embryo in a different woman. I think that's egregious <laughs> and outrageous. Sorry, that, that's uh, I'm saying egregious, but uh, I think it has to be outrageous. But it's, 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 it's you know, semantics. Because the, the technology is so new and so rapidly evolving, the courts are looking at issues that they've never had to consider before. And for instance, if a couple decides to have an embryo and then they later divorce, what happens to that embryo is the right to be a parent, for instance, if the woman can no longer um, use her eggs and make any other embryo, if this is her last chance to have a biological child, but the dad does not want to be a parent or, or vice versa, what happens here? Which right, the right to be a biological parent or the right not to be a parent should courts speak? deciding um, which rights prevail. Perhaps we do it by legislation. As
1: some states are doing, say very often there are contracts involved. It's a question of what about the contract or the agreement that was signed at the time of creating the embryo. Courts in different states have adopted different approaches. Most of them say you cannot coerce a parent. A few say that's not right and there is one state law, Arizona, Uh, which says that you, um, essentially you can force someone to be.
0: This industry is mostly centered on vulnerable people. So intended parents might not be financially vulnerable, but I I do believe that to a certain extent, they're emotionally vulnerable. They might be so stressed that they're running out of time that um, even if you gave them a huge document to read that is technically accurate, the circumstances might be that they're easily um, led to Uh, accept IVF add-ons that they don't need and other things, that they might actually even be harmful. Whereas, um, and and also that on the other respect, uh, and I'm now just focusing on women as opposed to uh, male donors, um, but the egg donors and uh, gestational surrogates, they're financially vulnerable, a lot of them, Um, particularly if they're donating um, or or providing, you know, the service, if you will, um, to somebody that is not their friend or um, a relative. So so when you look at the fact that there's so many vulnerabilities by participants, what kind of regulation is appropriate with respect to such vulnerability? I mean,
1: first of all, we need better education about one's fertility. Uh, uh, there are a lot of myths. If I freeze my eggs at 37, I will be fertile and I or, I, or I will produce a baby. So we need better education throughout and earlier. Um, we clearly need stronger informed consent laws and better ways of getting informed consent um, to the extent that deceptive advertising is involved. Then we also need to regulate the deceptive advertising. We need better Labeling. We, we need better testing requirements, better labeling limits on donor egg and sperm, and we need to ensure that there is a limited disclosure to donor-conceived offspring that they not only not only that they are donor-conceived because not all of them do know that they are donor-conceived, but also that they can get access to the identity of their donor if they want that. So we need much more much more thorough regulation throughout much more attention to issues of informed consent so respecting the autonomy of the intending parents of the donors of the surrogates while also ensuring that they have that they are appropriately and adequately informed to make these incredibly important decisions. Yes, and I have, yeah, I have two different issues to raise.
2: Um, the first is what's coming. And uh, certainly what scientists are very excited about and think they are close to doing in the lab and maybe have done um, is producing new eggs and new sperm. The French claim to have done it with sperm There is a group uh, of Israelis working with Cambridge University and a New York doctor who say they've done the initial steps in the lab with eggs. And that involves taking uh, stem cells, um, in this case, egg and sperm-specific stem cells, and creating new young eggs. So scientists discovered in 2011 that it was thought, you know, for all these years, That all the eggs a woman had, she had at birth. They found out in 2011 that women have egg specific stem cells in their ovaries, and that those egg specific stem cells can be harvested and then coaxed to develop from an immature state to a mature state in the lab by exposure to the right hormones. And that means everybody who still has an ovary, (laughs) um, can produce new young eggs. And so you could take a 60-year-old woman, and if you can take her stem cells, and if you can coax the development in the lab, she could have new young eggs to use to reproduce. And that solves the problem of age-related infertility. Now, is it there? No. Is it ever going to happen? We don't know. But scientists are relatively optimistic within the next 20 years. That's coming on the horizon. And then you
1: and then there's difference. another. Are you going to mention the related? Are you going to mention in vitro gametogenesis? Well, what
0: is that? What is that? Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there,
1: there, there's also IV, IVG, another new technology in which it's believed that uh, an individual uh, can reproduce, again, using stem cells, without another individual cloning so that's coming down the pipe yeah uh. here's what this involves. so, so that's i'm sorry if, and then and then you had a second you had a second point okay so let me do my second I, I can explain how it works but
2: uh, second point was there, there's still the larger set of questions which are age old and that who counts as the parents so we started by talking uh, about regulation of all these different clinics But the one pervasive set of regulation, every state has laws on parentage. And they're not all the same. And they involve some very complicated questions. And I would say with the embryo mix-ups, for example, I believe it's the equivalent of going to the hospital to have your cancerous leg removed and the doctor removes the wrong leg. That is, it is malpractice. It is outrageous. And most clinics on these cases settle quietly for a lot of money, and you don't know what settlements are. But on that question, who are the parents, I want to make it clear. <laughs> I think it's a terrible idea to have all these people recognize. you know, in the case of embryo mix-ups, to have multiple people recognized as uh, parents, Because with people, even fathers and mothers, who don't have an ongoing relationship at the time the child is born, uh, shared custody doesn't work out so well. People have been together a different story, but that whole question of what does it mean to be a parent and how can people cooperate enough is a hugely complicated issue. But I think going forward, we have to ask the questions. Uh, I am not uh, somebody who thinks anything goes, even though I'm very sympathetic to people who want to reproduce because I think our customs... And support for children take place in a social context in which, if you have resources for children that we don 't have, we have every child has health care, every child can afford a decent education, every child has the you know uh, child care so a single parent can work and support that child even if he or she isn 't rich. You know, that those background assumptions influence our traditions. And I think that whatever happens in the assisted reproduction field, we can't forget that the major regulation is the social regulation of parentage. And that is something that is profound and subtle. And we don't want the law to impose too forcefully, but still the decisions, who counts as parents, um, who should be allowed to reproduce, even if there are no laws, uh, they take place within a social context that is, you know, pretty hands-on and often coercive. And I don't think we should lose sight of that.
0: So on the question of uh, parentage, I understand when you said that it's even difficult for two parents, if, if they're not uh, involved with each other anymore, to decide, well, actually, even if they're involved with each other, <laughs> to decide what to do um, about certain circumstances um, of their child. But uh, it, when we talk about um Parentage, as opposed to involvement in a child's life. Are you speaking about different tiers so that um, people would be allowed visitation? Okay, so
2: uh, several things. First, in the article that Naomi and I wrote to which he was referring, what we were saying is that courts are increasingly recognizing more than two parents. But where they do, uh, they almost always end up with tiers. You know, so uh, a number of states say if you're a parent, you have a right to equal time with the child. Now, that's a small number of states. But a large number of states say if you're a parent, you have a right to shared custody with the court having discretion to decide how much time. The more you increase the number of people that count as parents, the more unworkable that becomes. So most states like Louisiana, for example, which recognizes more than two parents, But it doesn't give them all equal rights. So you might have a statute that allows visitation in some circumstances, but that's not equal parental rights. That's tough. The other issue is in this context where people have given birth to this child, they're bonded with it. Somebody else is the intended uh, genetic parents who very much wanted that child. Unless those people are extraordinary individuals, they're going to end up fighting, and that's really bad for children. I can't imagine visitation working over the objection of the two parents with primary custody. Now, if they are open to it and they're willing to facilitate it and it eases the process, great. But I would be completely opposed to recognizing multiple groups as parents, as parents, as full legal parents, where they don't get along with each other at the time of the birth. I I just think that's an invitation for conflict. So, So Naomi is more open to that than I am. I am very opposed. I think you have to decide who the parents are.
0: You have a good point about conflict and that it would be problematic, but I suppose when the child reaches majority...
2: I think the child should have a right to that information. And if the adult child wishes to seek out, you know, a surrogate mother, a, uh, you know, this poor couple, um, you know, who ended up with the wrong embryos, um, and where the child has bonded with them, where the child is a little bit older, I think having that transition be gradual rather than abrupt might be appropriate. Uh, But I do think what fertility clinics ought to be doing in this case is everything possible to give free services to the uh, couple that bore these children and now find out they're not theirs. I think that helping them have children and finding out what happened to the embryos they provided the fertility clinic should be, I should be mandatory, but I think any fertility clinic that wants to avoid being sued ought to be doing that voluntarily. I mean, I, I again, I think this is like a hospital <laughs> that operates on the wrong leg. Uh, they, they're wrong. I mean, they they owe the, the wrong parties a lot, and they ought to be doing everything they can to settle. Most of these cases settle, which tells you the fertility clinics are aware that there's a problem, and they don't want the publicity, and they're doing something to deal with the issue.
0: Right, and therefore we don't get the precedent, though, right, because yeah. they settle in it. Right. Yeah, I agree right. with you. I, I agree with you on that. Um, okay, well, um, is there anything else that you'd like to say that we haven't mentioned? Or
2: <laughs> um, uh, What's happening now on the uh, frozen embryos, uh, I don't think we, we fully addressed that, and uh, for a while, uh, the courts overwhelmingly said no involuntary parenthood, uh, that both parties have a right to change their mind, and if either objects, um, no, no procreation with frozen embryos. You have just gotten in the last few years uh, two or three cases where this is um, the would-be mother's only chance to procreate, and she has gotten custody of the eggs. Now, in those cases, um, a lot of it depends on what the understanding of the couple was at the time uh, they created the frozen embryos. So the most dramatic case is a case coming out of Illinois. Uh, the woman is infertile. Her then boyfriend said, you know, uh, the woman uh, was going to be infertile because she, she had cancer. They're going to remove her herbs. Uh This is going to be it. When she was done with, with chemo, she wasn't going to be able to reproduce. So this is her only shot at parenthood. She's in her 20s. Her then boyfriend says, hey, I'm with you. I'm going to help you do this. We're going to create embryos. We're going to freeze them and you can use them later if you're still alive, basically. And uh, they do it. Her fertility is gone and breaks up with the boyfriend and he remakes on the promise. They were going to sign a contract uh, indicating she could use them. He never signed. And we don't know why. And the court gave her custody of the frozen embryos for use if she wanted to. That's a precedent setting case. What I tell, you know, I tell my family law classes, you're, uh, you're drafting a prenuptial agreement. You should mention frozen embryos. You're doing a divorce settlement. I think it's malpractice not to ask, are there frozen embryos and to address that in the divorce settlement. The court should decide at the time of divorce who gets custody of the frozen embryos. Now, the difficult issue is, uh, let's say in either of these two cases I gave you, one a divorce, one with the infertile patient, she goes ahead and has a child, and then she goes on welfare or gets government benefits. The father may be liable for child support, uh, no matter what they agree to. And I think the law needs to change to terminate his parental status in those cases and to say um, he should be treated as a sperm donor legally and not as a father, where there was an agreement that she alone would make the reproductive decision. So uh, this is something where the law hasn't yet caught up with the practice, but right now courts tend to defer to contracts. If the contracts were clear and both parties really agreed at the time, Uh, the embryos were created. Uh, But they don't tend to pay much attention to form contracts. Uh, There's a case in Massachusetts where the husband's testimony was, yeah, we went to the fertility clinic. We had to fill out these forms. And I said, yes, dear, yes, dear, and let her fill out whatever she wanted. And she said, in the event of a divorce, she gets the eggs, you know, the frozen embryos. And he said, you know, we never really discussed it. She filled out the forms. So um, I think courts are... You know, moving, they tend to defer to the parties where they really agreed up front. Uh, But uh, if they didn't agree, they tend to lean against imposing reproduction. And I think that's changing. I think the understandings on that are changing a bit.
0: Yeah. I mean, you could understand as a judge that you would just defer to an unambiguous contract because then you're upholding contract law, but also not getting into an issue of which right prevails over the other. And um, it's uh, because you can see uh, both sides of the situation and um, it should be then the intent. And in the case of um, the, uh, the, the couple where um, the boyfriend understood that this was the last chance um, that his girlfriend had, I mean, you could understand the court's decision there because it seems they had an oral agreement and it would be kind of misleading of him to later change his mind because he knew the ramifications whereas say if you had a couple that had embryos not for this reason but then later on it just happened to be that um, unfortunately the woman had cancer and couldn't you know use her embryos Um, you know that intention that the you you couldn't say that the man understood when he agreed to make an embryo at the time that this was her only chance and precluded his partner from being able to have a viable embryo with somebody else. Right. So maybe that's why.
2: Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. No. and, And they're understandable and they're different. And some men feel very strongly, you know, when they create frozen embryos with their wives, Hey, I did this because we were going to have children together. But if we're not together, I don't want you with my child. Where I'm not, where either I'm not going to be involved in that child's life, or where I am, but in the context of a relationship where I no longer love and respect you, I that's tough. I certainly wouldn't want my child being raised by somebody I had doubts about. Um, you know, even if you know I was in love at the time, but the reasons for the breakup you know, called into doubt the respect I had for that person. I mean, you know, those are wrenching decisions. And there's one more piece in this that may affect the future, and that's abortion politics. So what you're getting in some of these cases, again, if you look at the public generally, lots of states where a great majority of people will say no abortion ever. You ask them instead, can you have an abortion if there are birth defects? And they say yes. Um, and there are real divides on that. So, uh, you know, there's a case in Texas where the mother who had signed uh, an agreement saying, in the event of divorce or whatever, uh, and we don't agree, the embryos are to be destroyed. And the mother went into court and said, "Uh, right to life, I don't want my embryos destroyed, and tried to get uh, Texas to recognize that, and Texas said no. On the other hand, Louisiana prohibits um, the uh, destruction of embryos. Now, there's nothing, I think, that can compel a person to um, you know, we said earlier, by the way, that you c- you can't compel a surrogate to have an abortion. I think that's right under existing law. But if you eliminate Roe versus Wade nationally, you could well have states that simply ban all abortions, and the surrogate is then stuck. She has to have the child, oh,
0: not be <laughs> yeah.
2: another state. Yeah. yeah, it's
0: it would be a horrible, yeah, horrible, right. <laughs> Because women right. need autonomy, and to force somebody to go through that, and then make them relinquish the child—my oh God! Yes, just...
2: and then who? can Well, she she should flee to uh, Michigan, <laughs> where the court will <laughs> recognize her as a mother. But uh, but you can't compel. But you know, I, I I would say no state is going to compel a woman to have an abortion. No state is going to compel somebody to implant embryos once they're created. Uh, but some states may prohibit a surrogate from having an abortion, um, or may prohibit the destruction of frozen embryos, as Louisiana does currently.
0: Well, I guess they can just move out of that state, <laughs> and um, and then <laughs> and take their
2: embryos with them. <laughs> yeah, take the
0: embryos uh, with her, and or, or reach an understanding that suits her with the parents. That's also. I suppose, something that's uh, open to all the parties, but, um, you know, hopefully it will not come to somebody forcing somebody to undergo pregnancy and not continue her own fertility treatment and then give up the child and have absolutely no rights to that child once she's established (laughs) emotional connection with them. Ah! But, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, thank you so much for this. This was, um, thank you. I very much appreciate that you've taken the time to discuss all these pertinent issues, even amongst all the (laughs) craziness that's uh, going on. Um, Because I just, I don't think that it's receiving the media attention that it really deserves because there are so many um, complicated issues around this area of the law and it just seems there's conflict between states and um, certain, you know, more regulation needs to occur and uh, there are gaps.
1: Yes, exactly. Thanks very much. We appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Have a wonderful uh, evening and stay safe. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.